moments now. God has been showing me some exciting things, and I want to share some of these things with you this morning. I want to take a little different tack, a little different approach to the 25th and 26th verses of the third chapter of Romans this morning, because that's going to be our text. But I have a rather long prelude before I get to the text. We'll probably get to the text in a half hour or so. But I have some opening remarks that will take me that long. I've entitled the message, Why Did Jesus Die? Or more appropriately, who did Jesus die for on whose behalf? What was the purpose for his death? Why did he die? Now, if I were to ask you that question, most of us would respond almost instinctively, well, Jesus died for me, right? That's the issue that I want to address this morning. While that's true that Jesus did die for me, while it's true that Jesus did die for, for us, He died for us secondarily. He died first for God. He died first for God. Now, I, I've always known that. But this week, as I've studied and thought and spent time with these passages, and indeed up through the 31st verse of the third chapter, a whole new perspective became clear to me that Jesus died first for God, then for us. And that's what I hope to show you throughout the message and to help you come into, come into relationship with that understanding. We live in a very man-centered culture. Wouldn't you agree with me? We live in a very man-centered world, a very man-centered era and, and man-centered society. Every place you look, the focus is on man. Men are concerned with self-fulfillment, self-gratification, self-worth, self-esteem. Men are concerned with selfism in our world. Interestingly, as I read Tippett's book yesterday, I began to see what a stark difference there is between the Western church and the church uh, behind the iron and the bamboo curtain, where there is real persecution, where you take your, literally your life in your hands when you say, I believe in Jesus Christ. In the Western world, where there isn't that, where we have the freedom to worship, and incidentally, the church in Europe is dead deader than a doornail. And it's dying in America. Don't believe what you hear when they say, oh, we're in a time of great revival. We're not in a time of revival in this country. We're in a time of fatness and softness. But I, I, I looked at the stark difference between the two. This attitude, this sense of being involved and preoccupied with self has permeated even the church. That's the sad thing about this culture. 
the church is not fulfilling its commission to be salt and light. It's not flavoring the culture. It's not making a difference. It's not inhibiting the encroachment of the vileness of this world. It's not doing it. The church is not making people thirsty. Another aspect of what salt does. We have people in the church, and I'm sad to say, a great many of people who profess to be Christians concerned with their own well-being, with their own comfort, with their own ease, with their own survival. A marked difference from the New Testament church. A marked difference from the church in persecuted lands. Places where Christianity is forbidden. How did the church get this way? I think if you see how we invite people to God, how we invite people to Christ, we come into the church with an attitude, we, we live in the world first, and we are permeated with this attitude of self being concerned with me, having my, my own personal space, my own personal peace. Don't encroach on my area. Leave me alone. I won't bug you if you don't bug me. Isn't that true? It's all around us. And that's so permeated the church that when we invite people to Christ, we say to them, here's how we invite people to Christ. And I'm horribly guilty of this, and God has embarrassed me this week as I have looked at my own life. We bribe people to come to Christ. We focus on the people, not on Him. We say, if you'll, if you'll come to Jesus, He'll solve all your problems. If you come to Jesus, He'll make you well. If you come to Jesus, he'll make you happy. If you come to Jesus, he'll save you from hell. <laughs> now, all of that is true. He will do all of that. But you see what we do? We are bribing people to come to Christ. We're trying to create incentive. We've picked up the mentality of the free enterprise system. You create incentive. You find a need and fill it, and you sell Jesus to people. You see that? And I'm just as guilty as anybody. I stand up here and give an altar call, give a, an invitation for people to, to give their life to Christ, and I say, oh, if you're anxious, if you're fearful, if you worry, if you have problems in your life, come to Jesus and he'll, and he'll do all that. But that sets people up. That sets people up just to focus on themselves and to continue to focus on themselves, on getting their needs met and getting themselves stroked and having their tummies rubbed continuously. It creates a false sense of mission and purpose. And why am I a Christian? For me? Or for his sake? There's a vast difference between those two. And then when we get them into the church, you know what we teach them? 
God will bless you. God will bless you if you read your Bible. God will bless you. If you pray, God will bless you. If you obey God, God will bless you. If you give, God will bless you. Now again, while all of that is true, it's the wrong perspective. Because we keep people focused on themselves and their own life and their own needs. God is reduced to nothing more than a spiritual vending machine. Most Christians today have no concept of God's plan and his desire for their life. When you pray, how do you pray? Do you know that the Our Father, remember when the apostles, the disciples said, Jesus, teach us how to pray? And then he gave them a model prayer. The Our Father is, is, is a prayer, but more, more than that, it's, a, it's an outline. It's a model for a prayer. How does it start out? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. See, all that stuff's up front, isn't it? Not about you, but this happens with me. When I go to prayer, I know that model and I understand it. And so I begin my prayers always with worship and praise and adoration, acknowledgement of his glory and who he is. But I want to hurry through that part to get to what? The gimme's. And the gimmies are all legitimate. I mean, God says, ask, you know, you don't have because you don't ask. But see, I'm so focused on me that I want to rush through the worship part. I want to rush through. That's why some people come late to church. Why they leave early? Because the worship part, the singing part is, well, you know. I just want to come for the message. Some people leave before the offering. You won't be blessed. <laughs> but you know, you, you find yourself, you rush through that part of your prayer to hurry up and get to the gimme's. Oh God, give me this. Oh God, give me that. Oh God, do this. Oh God. Why is it that we don't spend more time in adoration and worship? We live in this culture that is, that is obsessed with the cultic idea of self-esteem. If I hear that phrase one more time, I think I'm going to go crazy. Now, I know, I know I've ticked some of you off already. That's my purpose. <laughs> to stir you up, to make you uncomfortable. But people come around and they say, I have poor self-esteem. My response is, so what? So do I. He's not very nice, is he? I suppose I should probably candy coat that a little bit better, huh? I'm sick and tired of my bland form of Christianity. I don't know about you. I'm tired of being consumed with me. With saying, oh God, do this, do that, do the other thing. 
My prayer recently has been, God, release me just to worship you. Free me to glorify you. Not to be focused on me. I am absolutely convinced, beyond a shadow of a doubt, because I see it so clearly pictured throughout lives, that our obsession with ourself in the church, the Western church, is what is the cause of a very weak witness. Why are not we as believers in the church out aggressively evangelizing the lost? Why are we not in the church aggressively and actively serving God? I was talking with a, a brother last night um, just before the evening service last night. He was sharing with me about his cousin who is a pastor who was leaving the church he was pastoring. It's in the beach area here. Totally frustrated. And I said, why was he frustrated? Why was he leaving? He said, well, because... He says, because the people won't do anything. He said, they come and they sit in the pews and they give their money. They're, it's a wealthy church financially, well off. But they don't do anything. And this guy is absolutely overwhelmed with the work of the ministry. No one comes forward for any length of time to say, here I am, send me. Why is that? It's because we have very subtly allowed ourselves to buy into and maintain the attitude of the culture inside the church concerned with myself. Don't move me out of my comfort zone. Don't disturb me. You know, you irritate people, you know what they do? They get up and leave go to another church where they won't be irritated. I get letters. People write me letters. Say, I'm never coming back to your church. You're too hard. You're mean. I say, God bless you. I do. I write them back. I say, God bless you. You can't stay in this church very long without being convicted. Either you've got to leave or you've got to serve, one of the two. We've got a lot of people in this church that are serving Jesus, and I'm excited by that. But you can't come here and just sit very long because of the wrath of Zach. <laughs> Eventually, we'll catch up to you. Actually, it's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. What does the Bible teach? You know what the Bible teaches? The Bible teaches that in everything, the single focus of our life is God's glory. God's glory, not our own. God's glory. 
In Psalm 115, verse 1, I've given you your notes. You don't have to turn there. Just look at your notes. Psalm 115, verse 1. Listen to what the psalmist says. Not to us, O Lord. Not to us. But to your name be the glory. Whoa, what a perspective. This guy's got a hold of something. We run around, we want a reward, we want to be praised, we want to be glorified, we want somebody to say, oh, you're such a nice guy, you did such a good job. So, you know, all of the books tell you, praise people, praise people, you get them to do more. Oh, man, that's sick. You got a sick church when you got to praise people to get them to do something. You ought to be doing it for the glory of God. For the glory of God. Not to us, O oh Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. God, what a privilege it is to serve you. What a privilege it is to talk about you. That your name be glorified. Not me. Isaiah, the 45th chapter. Go home this afternoon and meditate on the 45th chapter of Isaiah. I just picked out one verse and a portion of that verse. God speaks through Isaiah's mouth. And he says, I am the Lord. I am the only God. Now, why does he say that? Well, the context is Israel is off in apostasy. They're worshiping every other God from all these nations around them. They've just become absolutely pathetic. They want what they want. They've gone astray. And God soundly rebukes them. He says, I am the Lord, and I am the only God. There is no other. You know what he's saying? He's saying, worship me and worship me only. Glorify me. Now, at this point, someone's going to say, boy, God sure has an awful big ego problem, doesn't he? That's very typical of what fallen man would say about God, because fallen man doesn't really understand him. We take our flaws, and we take our idiosyncrasies, and our sinfulness, and we attribute it to God, when we don't even understand his great majesty and glory. God doesn't have an ego problem. He's God. He's worthy. He's majesty. He's glorious. He's awesome. <laughs> My gosh. He's worthy. Absolutely worthy. Did you ever grow up with some childhood heroes? people who you wanted to emulate, people who you admired, maybe borderline on worshiping. You know, we have the, all the, the cult heroes, the rock, rock groups and all this stuff. And, you know, it's just, it's all, we have this need in us to worship. And this need pops through just looking for outlets. 
God has made men to worship. He has made men to glorify Him. And we, we have this need in us, and we don't know what to do with it if it's not focused on Him. We find ourselves worshiping and, and holding up as heroes and, and idols and, and role models, all these other people. We, in a very real way, make them gods. We make ourselves a god. Have you ever been out in the mountains at night, around the desert, way out when it's real dark? There's no haze in the sky, no clouds, no glare from the city lights. It's just absolutely still and dark. And you go outside and you look up. What do you say? What comes out of your mouth? What impulse stirred up in you as you look up? You see the great heavens arrayed before you. You see the multitudes of the stars, the awesomeness of the universe standing right there in front of you. And all you can say is, wow. And it's real frustrating if you're all alone. You have no one to say that to. <laughs> oh, did you see that? You see, inside of us is this, this built-in compulsion to worship, and it looks for outlets to express itself. To glorify God. When my son was born, I will never forget that time. Seven years ago now, I had the great privilege of coaching my wife and being there with, during the birthing process and just watching the whole thing. And I have a medical background. I've studied physiology and anatomy and biochemistry. And so I understand so much about the human body and all the, the mechanisms and birthing and all that stuff. But it never became quite so clear to me. I never stood in such awe as when I saw my son born. I stood back and I was just in awe and I said, God, you're magnificent. You're awesome. At his creation, I worshiped and I gave glory to God. He's worthy because he's God. Not because we can get something out of him, but because he's God. In Colossians, the second chapter, Paul writes these words, verse 16. All things were made by him and for him. The whole of creation was made for him. Why? So the people would see it and they would reflect glory to him. They said, God, your majesty. You're wonderful. You're awesome. In 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, Paul writes again, the 31st verse. Listen to what he has to say here. He says, in whatever you do, even in your eating and your drinking, this even extends to the most mundane acts of living. 
even in your eating and drinking. Whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Do it to the glory of God. Whew! Can you imagine? When that becomes our attitude, that we begin to do everything in our life to the glory of God, how that has evaded us, When you wake in the morning, before you even open your eyes, pray this prayer. God, I want to live my life today for your glory. Every breath I take, Lord, for your glory. Every word I speak, every action, every attitude, God, for your glory. And then rehearse that throughout the day. Then at the end of the day, when you're getting ready to retire, and you lay your head on your pillow, God, I hope that I lived my day for your glory. Show me the areas that I fell short. Show me the areas that I robbed you of glory to glorify myself that I might repent of those things. Because God, you're worthy. And whatever we do, even to the most mundane... And, you know, if people, more people were eating and drinking for the glory of God, we'd have a whole lot less problems in our lives, health-wise, socially speaking, and so forth. Did you think that's true? In First Chronicles, the 16th chapter, turn there with me. This is a marvelous <coughs> sentiment expressed by David. The 16th chapter of First Chronicles... The occasion is the Ark of the Covenant coming back to Jerusalem after being gone for a great length of time. And David just praises God, extols his name, worships him. Listen to what David says. We're just going to hop around here. Verse 8, give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, make known among the nations what he has done, his great glory. Sing to him, sing praise to him, tell of all of his wonderful acts. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Look to the Lord in his strength. Seek his face always. Remember the wonders he has done, his miracles and the judgments he's pronounced. Go over with me to verse 20. Uh, 23. So sing to the Lord all the earth, proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all the peoples, for great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him, strength and joy in his dwelling place. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of nations, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Wow. Isn't that exciting? You hear David's sentiment? You hear David's heart? Praising the Lord over and over, rehearsing the great sentiment that's all throughout Scripture, bring glory to God. Psalm 19, verse 1. I didn't give you that reference, but let me just share with you. 
Psalm 19, verse 1. The theme of the whole universe is the glory of God. Because David writes in that passage, the heavens declare your glory. The heavens, the whole universe declares his glory. Why should we be any different? Why should we not? I believe with all my heart that we are to be consumed with how God feels, not with how we feel. I believe with all my heart we are to be consumed with what honors God and not with what makes us happy. You say, wait a minute. What about my happiness? Doesn't God want me to be happy? Yes, God wants you to be happy. But we're to be consumed with what honors him first, not with what makes us happy. If you are seeking out after your own happiness, if you've come to Jesus on fraudulent means, if you're seeking your own life and your own happiness and your own fulfillment and your own gratification, if that's why you came to Christ, you are not going to glorify God. You will not. You cannot. You're not in the place to. And what you get in return is going to be a cheap, cheap substitute for what God wants to give you. What did Jesus say? He who seeks to find his life, who seeks to hold on to his life, will what? And ultimately end up what? Losing it. But he who seeks to lose his life for my sake shall find it. Worship God, not be concerned with myself. We have, we have in the church such a, a debilitating mentality. Everybody is concerned with relieving their tensions and frustrations and, and overcoming their anxieties. And I mean, that's the focus. We find ourselves wanting to spend hour upon hour upon hour in counseling. An hour upon hour upon hour in discipleship. Those are only delaying tactics. Those are only ways of, of, of avoiding the real issues. You know what the real issue is? The real issue is being committed to this book and to having my face on the ground before God. That's the real issue. You need counseling? No. You don't need counseling. You need to get on your face before God. He has you where he has you for his purposes. The goal is not to evade your circumstances. The goal is not for you to be happy. The goal is for you to glorify God where you are. To worship Him where you are in the midst of whatever circumstances He has placed you. 
To your name be the glory, O Lord, regardless of where I find myself. And while our flesh cries out for relief, our spirit longs to soar and to glorify. in their life to glorify God. Not to relieve their anxieties. Ooh, that doesn't sound like very much fun. Doesn't, does it? This life wasn't meant to be fun. Fun comes later. Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33 says what? Seek. Seek what? Seek second. Seek third, fourth, fifth, later on. Later on, when it's convenient, seek the kingdom of God, right? No. He says seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first his righteousness. What does that mean? It translates into glorify him. Put his purposes first. Exalt his name. Acknowledge that his purposes are primary. And commit yourself to his purposes. And he says, and, and all this other stuff that you're worried about, all this other stuff that distracts you and consumes you, I'll take care of that. Seek me first. And I'll go before you. Glorify the Lord. I love what David says in Psalm 16. I love his words. The sentiment he expresses is so beautiful. Verses 8 and 9. He says, I have set the Lord before me always. Not sometimes. Not most of the time. Not often. I have set the Lord before me, what? Always. And then he says in verse 9, I love this, therefore, my heart is glad. You see that? You see the fruit of setting the Lord first is there. God makes sure it's there. When a man or a woman sets his life in his heart, in his desire, in his goal to glorify God with his life, that he's going to be willing to be moved out of his comfort zone that he's going to be willing to extend him or herself for the sake of others. Not to be obnoxious, not to be self-righteous, but to be a genuine servant of other people, to proclaim God's glory. I'm convinced that the single greatest spiritual reality that glorifies God, that brings God glory, is none other than salvation itself. Throughout all of Scripture, God describes Himself as a Savior. He glories in the fact that He can save people who are created in His image. And salvation brings Him glory.
Brings him glory. The psalmist says it. Isaiah says it. God says it. Over and over and over throughout the scriptures. Jesus died for God's sake. For God's glory. Jesus humbled himself for God's glory first. Turn to Philippians with me, the second chapter. This is a wonderful passage. Kathy, would you open that door, please? Both those doors. Are those doors downstairs opened? You get some, it's hot up here. You guys are probably nice and cool down there, right? The lights are hot. Look at what Paul says about Jesus, about his attitude. Verse 5, he says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Now he's talking to us, not just the Philippians. This is what your attitude should be. This is how, if you're a Christian, this should be your attitude. Now he describes Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus very willingly allowed himself to be moved out of his comfort zone. He didn't grasp and hold on to his Godhead and his power and his glory and his position. He was quite willing to humble himself. His choice. And therefore God exalted him into the, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, what's the last part of the 11th verse? What is it? To the glory of God the Father. Why did Jesus die? For God's glory. Not for his own. God exalted him, yes. But as a result of him glorifying his Father. Do you remember Jesus' prayer in John, the 17th chapter? His high priestly prayer the night before he's going to die? He starts off the whole prayer and he says, Father, glorify me that I may what? Glorify you. Well, he's getting ready to go to the cross. That God be glorified by him hanging on the cross. How in the world was God going to be glorified by Jesus hanging on a cross, dying the death of a common criminal? That's God's great glory. That he could get glory out of that. When you think about heaven... What do you think about? What do you think about? Angels? Harps. <laughs> Halos. Clouds. Gold streets. I used to think about my new body a lot. You heard me talk about that. Some people think about those mansions in the sky. What do you think about when you think about heaven? 
You know what I'm learning to think about? This is exciting. Heaven is where I'm going to get to be able to glorify God forever unhindered. Unhindered. And somebody's saying, that doesn't sound like much fun. I thought when we get to heaven, we get to party. <laughs> Glorifying God unhindered is partying to the max. <laughs> I'm serious. I'm absolutely serious. You ever been filled with the Holy Spirit? I mean, so filled with God's grace and His power and His glory because you've been at the throne worshiping and glorifying Him that you can't contain yourself? No drug can get you that high. No substance, no other person, no other thing in this life can give you that kind of ecstasy. Nothing. Everything pales in comparison. We had this fast here a month or so ago. So many of you just really, and some of you for the very first time in your life, really got close to God. Many of you began to experience something of what it means to glorify God throughout two days of fasting, two days of saying no to the flesh. And two days of saying yes to God. Two days of saying, God, I'm doing this for your sake, for your glory, to get close to you. And oh, the things that happened as a result. Traumatic changes, and, and those changes are not just temporary. They're long-lasting. They are producing fruit, and they will continue to produce fruit on into eternity. Glorify God. You got a little taste of what it means to commit yourself to God and how He powerfully works when we glorify Him. How does Jesus' death glorify God? First, it shows, it gives testimony, it demonstrates that God is righteous and just that God does what is right. That though men malign his name, though men accuse him, though men say, you're unfair, you're unjust, if you're such a good God, why don't you do something about all the problems in this world? Has that thought ever entered your mind? Have you ever heard that accusation? Sure. It's uttered all the time. Sadly, by too many Christians who don't know their God because they've not spent time with Him. They've not grown to love Him and appreciate Him, value Him and glorify Him. So they stand off and accuse Him. They have all these questions about why, why, why. And this is the situation that Paul addresses. He said, God displayed him. Put him up for everybody to see as a sacrifice of atonement. 
the theological word is as a propitiation. It means nothing more than a satisfaction. Write that word in your Bible under, over that verse 25. Sacrifice of atonement, write satisfaction. Jesus satisfied God's demand for justice. You say, well, why, why, is, that, why is that so important? Because when you've got a holy God, a righteous God, a God that demands perfect justice, he can't vary from that. He can't be inconsistent to his nature. God doesn't grade on the curve. He doesn't just ignore sin as if it never existed. He's got to do something about it. His very nature demands it if he is to pour out his mercy on men. He says he displayed Jesus as satisfaction, as payment. Now look it. He did this to demonstrate his justice. That word can also be translated his righteousness. God wanted all of creation to see and to know and to understand that he does what is right. There is no inconsistency in him. He is not whimsical. He is not capricious. He does what is right. He does not vary. And when we see that and understand that and grasp that, he receives glory. He did this to demonstrate his justice because, he says, in his forbearance, it means in his patient tolerance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Let me ask you a question. Aren't you glad that God left the sins committed beforehand unpunished? What are the wages of sin? death. Would you like, would have liked God to, as soon as you sin, strike you dead? No. Throughout the whole Old Testament, he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Why? Because he knew that he would be satisfied in the cross. He knew that there was no sacrifice a man could offer. Out of the millions upon millions of animals that were sacrificed in Israel for atonement, None of them satisfied God's demand for justice because they were all man sacrifices. They're all man generated. What did they do? What effect did they have? They only pointed a picture, they drew a picture, they, they pointed to that one final sacrifice on the cross. The man that believed God and, and offered those sacrifices, those sacrifices only covered over temporarily their sin until their sin could be cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. He did this to demonstrate his justice. Because in his forbearance, in his patient tolerance, he left those sins previously committed unpunished. People malign God's name all the time. When we tell people he's a just God and a holy God and a righteous God, you can trust him, they say, well, what about that? Why didn't he do something about that? And you say he already did on the cross. The solution's in the cross. It's already been taken care of. It's already done. In the Old Testament, you look back and you read the Old Testament, 
it appears as if God is inconsistent. Do you remember Abraham? He's called a friend of God. And Abraham is a guy that got his wife to go live with a king to save his own throat. Twice he did this. A friend of God. Jacob. He's called a prince of God. Indeed, God is called the God of Jacob. Jacob the swindler. A con artist. God associates with such kinds? Isn't there some kind of inconsistency? You remember Moses, the great lawgiver, called the servant of God? <laughs> Moses brought the law, said, Thou shalt not murder. What did Moses do? Murdered. A servant of God. David. Remember David? A man after God's own heart. An adulterer and a murderer. Whoa, God, how can you call these guys your servant, your friend, a man after your heart? You see this horrible sin in their life. That's what Paul says. That in God's patient tolerance, he overlooked that sin for the time being. Just like in your life and my life, he overlooked the sin previously committed until we would come to the cross. And if we don't come to the cross and we come to the end of our life, then the punishment falls on us, not on Christ. He says in verse 26, he did it. He demonstrated his son to demonstrate his justice at the present time when Christ was held up on that cross. That's when it all came to pass. That's when it all happened. When God revealed that he is a just God and a right God, he revealed it in the cross. No more could people say, you're not fair. No more could people say, how can you overlook sin? He's finally punished it. And he did it in his only son. And then Paul says, so as to be just and the justifier or the one who justifies the man who has faith in Jesus. It's at the cross. When Jesus died, at the instant of his death, that payment was made for sin, that God was satisfied, and the floodgate was open now for his mercy. The issue is not how do we get fallen sinful men to God. The issue is, how do we get a holy God to fallen and sinful men without violating his nature? Without dirtying up heaven? And that solution's in the cross. And that solution can only come when payment is made and the door is opened and the floodgates are open for God's mercy to pour out on man. It's at the cross when Jesus died for God first, that God should show his mercy. Not before. God was in his own way. He couldn't save man, he couldn't redeem man until first satisfaction was made and the way was open. And at the instant of Jesus' death on that cross, you remember in the temple in Jerusalem, the curtain was torn from the top to the bottom the way was open to God now. 
to His glory. To His glory. Jesus died first for God that His name no longer be maligned. That He be shown and proven to be just and righteous and merciful all at the same time. Isn't that marvelous? Praise His name. Let's pray. God, we love you and we worship you. Lord, how we praise your holy name. You are truly a majestic and awesome God. Lord, help us to know this. Help us to understand this. Help us to come close to you. Lord, for your sake. And Lord, we pray, deliver us from this cultic idea of being obsessed with ourself and our own happiness and our own fulfillment. Lord, that we might wait on you, that we might glory in your holy name, regardless of our circumstances. Lord, that we be people who are committed to you and your great glory and your great purposes. Help us, O oh Lord, to be that kind of people. Lord, that we be aggressive in our evangelistic outreach to the lost. Lord, that we be excited to be moved out of our own comfort zones to serve you. Lord, let us not hold back at any point. Challenge us, I pray, by your great and powerful spirit. You are worthy, Lord, because you are God. Thank you, Lord. Amen.